Hello, and welcome to a special series about books that we do from time to time on the podcast called Book Talks. In previous episodes, you may remember that we covered John Berger's Ways of Seeing, The Spiritual and Art, and The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. But today, we're covering Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Artists, a collection of biographies from mostly Florentine artists from the High Renaissance, including big names like Botticelli and Raphael, but also some fascinating lesser knowns. As always, friend, painter, and collagist Mandolin Wilson-Rosen is back to co-host with me and lend her steady stalwart hand to the helm. Because this book is a dense little mannerist nugget, full of gossip and bragging, OCD tendencies, love affairs, and even food preferences. AKA, it's a very human mannerist nugget. And it's also going to be a two-parter, because we had so much to comment on that we ran deliciously long. So keep an eye out for part two. Be back in a bit with the great masters of Vasari's Florence. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toluto. Hello and welcome to Book Talks. As always, beloved friend of the pod and multimedia artist extraordinaire, Mandolin Wilson-Rosen is joining me to co-tackle a most excellent ancient art historical book about the High Renaissance by Giorgio Vasari called the Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, first published in 1550. Welcome back, Mandy. So nice to have you back in the co-host seat. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. And I love this book, but we'll talk more about, you know, our loves and, and other feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get real on this book <laughs> and evaluate it for whether it's readable or not in this day and age. So we will we will set the record straight for all, all eternity. <laughs> So I wanted to start off in case a listener hasn't heard of it. Um, who was the author, Giorgio Vasari? Giorgio was born prematurely. This is a randomly specific factoid on the Wikipedia. <laughs> we all know he was born prematurely on my very own birthday, July 30th in 1511 in Arezzo, Tuscany. And he lived until 62 years young. And he died in his favorite city in the world, Florence. And in a way, he coined the term Renaissance. Like French authors saw that he referred to his cultural time as Renaissance or rebirth. And so they translated it into French. And voila, the term Renaissance came to be used to describe the flowering of art in Italy during the 16th century. Giorgio was primarily a painter and an architect working in the Mannerist style. So that was a style in the High Renaissance that celebrated exaggeration, vivid color, and heightened emotion, like think Parmigianino with the long stretched neck. As an architect, he was known for his Uffizi Loggia and the Vasari Corridor, both built around river views. And he was a Michelangelo 
super fan, which I'll get into later. It's kind of annoying, actually. And we'll learn more about that. And he even designed Michelangelo's tomb in the Basilica of Santa Croce. And ultimately, he was a person of high status in his community. He even became a knight of the Golden Spurs, anointed by none other than the Pope. Not just a knight of the spur, but a knight of the Golden Spurs. Pretty impressive. So why did Vasari write Lives? I'm just going to call the book Lives from now on. because It's like a very long, very long title. Um, one night at a party at a cardinal's house in Rome, a writer friend of Vasari's proposed writing a biography of all the exciting local artists in Rome and Florence and asked Giorgio to kind of weigh in with his expertise. Vasari ended up taking over and thus begat the first important encyclopedic book on art history, or at least the most famous and most read of older art literature. And that brings us to the question of the book. What is Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects? Well, I'm going to tell you. Lives is a big compilation from the Renaissance and its mostly Florentine names and artists. It's kind of a combo bio. And it came out in two editions, first in 1550, which included just artists in Florence, and second in 1568, which grudgingly included Titian and some Venetian names. Vasari holds Florentine artists and artists working in Rome up as the best in the world, the superlative gold standard, the standard bearers for all new developments in Renaissance art. And the second edition is longer, and it's the one that's most often translated. So if you buy it on Amazon or your local bookstore, you'll be reading a portion of the second edition, most likely. The most recent translation is actually from 1991 and happens to be the book I have. Um, and Vasari was also notoriously a bit fuzzy on dates and facts because he just didn't, you know, he just didn't want to get bogged down by details in his biographical efforts. <laughs> there are so many names in the original three volumes of the second edition from 1568 that it's even hard to get like a true count. Some are just mentioned, some are fleshed out, but it seems to be somewhere between 135 to 210. That's kind of what I was able to glean. The English translations usually select a curated set of the most important names. For example, my copy has 35. And his list expectedly contains very few women. My copy has one single woman artist and a few other quick mentions, but we'll get uh, we'll get deeply into that later for sure. And Lives is also hella gossipy. He's a snarky senior, which I loved. And it reminded me of this tweet by my friend, artist and writer, Elizabeth Nicola, who said, if it's gossip, I'm going to like it. I don't have to understand it. And that's exactly the vibe of lives. Because this gossip is almost 500 years old. And it's still juicy. Some of the gossip, though, turns slanderous. He's also a slanderous senior. For example, two artists in particular get painted by his poison pen. He falsely accuses Andrea del Castaño of murder because he says he killed Domenico Veneziano. But in fact, Andrea died several years before Domenico, and he problematically calls Giovanni Antonio Bazzi il sodoma and immoral, bestial, vain, and lazy, even though he had several important commissions and was quite successful. So that was a quick overview. Maybe not so quick, but Mandy and I decided to approach this book in a divide and conquer fashion because it's a wee bit dense. So we each took about six bios. Um, we will soon discover that I bailed partway on Michelangelo, so I technically only read five. But 
before we get into the artists that we chose, Mandy, I want to put you on the spot to see if you want to add any more details to what I just quickly summed up about the book in general or about Vasari himself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you did such a great job of summing that up. Thank you, Amy. But I'll add a couple things. Um, in my copy of the book, which is, it's actually titled Lives of the Artists. So it's abridged by my translator, who was George Bull, and he translated it in 1965. So it, he, he talks about a lot about Vasari and his place in Renaissance culture. And so I thought it was fascinating. And one of the things I loved about his little intro is that he outlines a bunch of terms that Vasari uses to, to evaluate the work. Um, some of the words that he was interested in, you know, he had these terms that he used over and over, such as disegno, which was Italian for design, natura, which is the imitation of nature, Grazia or grace, which I thought was interesting, an undefinable quality of a softness about the figures, for example. Um, decoro, which was for decorum. Indizio, which means judgment, having to do with uh, with this esoteric skill that the artist operates using the rules of measurement and proportion. And then maniera, which is the artist's individual style or manner. Um, so I thought that was all really interesting to kind of keep in mind as I read Vasari. And then the other thing that I'll just add is that I, I think for me, what was helpful about George Bull's translation is that he points out that Vasari, the whole point, the, the whole reason that Vasari is important is that, you know, he was not necessarily the first person to write bios of, of some of these people some of these particular artists but for example you know Boccaccio's Decameron is a famous work that mm. that details some of these people and there is an anonymous work called The Life of Brunelleschi and for another example but Vasari takes these things that were known and puts them all in one place and um you know not not least of which were his own kind of personal observations of these people who were his contemporaries so did he actually take some of those older works and kind of pop them into lives? Yes, he quotes some works that he mentions, but most of it seems to be his own firsthand observations and, and experience with these people and also word of mouth. He goes and makes pilgrimages to many of the works that he writes about, if he hadn't already. And he even collects drawings from many of the artists that he later publishes in another volume of, of the lives with illustrations, which I have not seen. So I don't know, that'd be worth looking up for those of the listeners who are curious. Yeah. And I was also interested because the book really focuses on Florence. And I was reading that because he was so focused on his own group of artists, the Florence and Rome sector, that that influenced art history for many many years to come i would i would argue centuries because because it was the only thing written about future art historians were like oh okay these must have been been the best artists look no further when really it was just a tiny sliver of what was happening during the renaissance and he paints the renaissance happening in florence and rome as like the pinnacle and it, it's just it's it's an example of how how the written word can influence an artist's legacies, which artists are cherry-picked from history to explore. Or, and, and it was fascinating to me to see how influential it had been. 
Right. And that, that's so important to say. And also, not only was he focusing on that area, Florence and Rome in particular, but he writes about these artists as if one begat the next, a very clear, linear you know, progression from one workshop to the to the apprentices of that workshop and the next sort of generation after generation, student after student after student, as if they followed, you know, very logically from one genius to the next, which, you know, many scholars later on would completely argue with. But but that, you know, he was so clear about it and wrote in such detail that still today, when you Google some of these artists, you you come back to Vasari. I mean, it, he's got like sort of the monopoly on the details of many of the artists in this book. And it's so interesting what you said about like this idea of master begets apprentice who begets apprentice. There's these cliches in almost every single one, especially the big guys, the big names of like the student outperforming the master. So there's a little story about uh, Chimambue, it's a little hard to pronounce, was the master for Giotto and that like supposedly... Giotto painted a fly on a Chimabue painting and Chimabue was like, I'm going to brush that fly away. It's so realistic, you know, and, but that story, that kind of idea is in Michelangelo and all the other biographies of the student kind of like outperforming the master and the master tucking the tail between their legs and retreating in humiliation. And uh, that seems to be like a cliche part of almost every single story, which, you know, a lot of people I researched were like, mm. I don't know if this could possibly be true be true every single time. Right. And you know, it's it's very clear to Vasari how the genius which he cares very much about that um that each of these artists possess some sort of genius, you know, that was either, you know, given to them by God or, you know, sort of, you know, born in nature that 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 genius it was it's the way that Vasari understood that you know how could each of these artists have come to the the important discoveries that they made and and as we know <laughs> it's not that simple you know that um that there could have been a lot more factors at play yeah and i think uh, there's like a very telling like strong catholic magical religious sort of tone to this idea of genius especially in my aborted michelangelo <laughs> reading wizards is like like basically he's presented as the second coming of Christ or God in a way, like they're given these sort of supernatural qualities as if they were a deity. Right. It's so interesting. And I don't, I certainly don't know much about Neoplatonic thought, but I know that this is the time of a lot of different sort of trends and thinking. And Vasari is trying to assimilate all of these ideas. You know, we could use Raphael's painting, The School of Athens, which is sort of like a who's who of the arts and sciences. Some of you might know that painting. We'll talk about it later. But that was a great example of of this idea that was happening then where philosophy and religion were being called into concert. So all of that was going on at this time. Scientists, philosophers, religious leaders, prophets, you know, every, um, religious scholars we're we're debating and you know trying to hammer out the nature of thought the nature of existence it's, it's pretty interesting to read about that time yeah and he has such a focus on his worldview like you were just describing that sort of philosophical religious commingling that he's very prejudiced against other styles of art we'll find out later about how much he derided 
Venice, like he, you know, there was a, a thriving community of artists in Venice. They were always less than because they were influenced. How dare they by Albrecht Dürer and his German school of art, where it was a little bit more, the compositions were a little bit more locked in and a little bit more rigid posing to Vasari that was almost sacrilegious and a waste of any artistic skill to to go in that direction. So this sort of my way is the best way, you know, like uh, my way or the highway style of uh, evaluating all Renaissance art is is something to keep in mind as we go through. But that being said, it is a, a very fascinating archive of that period. Yeah. And he also, not only did he focus on Florence and Rome, but he even within that um, completely ignores Byzantine art and Gothic art and focuses right. you know, only on this like style of, um, you know, basically uh, commissions, papal commissions usually, but also, you know, commissions from other Catholic um, groups. Yeah. As- I think he even calls like the German art um, barbaric. And I think he might've even accidentally quoted He actually might have originated the term Gothic or something like that. I read for a second. But yeah, he and and also, you know, the the popes, they were basically like every few years, there was a new pope. It was like a a revolving door of popes. And and some of the popes were, you know, a lot of most of the popes have in common that they patronize the arts. So a lot of great artworks got made or built, sculpted or painted. But there were really questionable, problematic popes too. Like there were there were popes that there was one pope called the warrior. I think it was Julius was the warrior pope, and he you know basically waged wars as a papal state to you know acquire territory. And um, so yeah, I mean Vasari, um, it's questionable. It feels very almost like colonizer a little bit because he's part of this area that's sort of gobbling up areas and and being this kind of warrior warlike state and he's basically saying we're superior and anyway just something to something struck me maybe maybe not accurate yeah yeah and and he wasn't accurate at times so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll look at a little couple of those moments too yeah so i guess without further ado what we planned for the episode was to just each of us take a little name and just do a quick highlight it's not going to be a deep dive into the details of each artist more just like what we found entertaining or fun about each one to give you a flavor of the book so if don't mind mandy you're up next you're gonna do giotto all right thank you um so so yes, the first my my first artist that I that I chose to read and discuss is Giotto, which his full name is actually Giotto di Bondone, but some you know most of us know him still today as as Giotto. Some of these artists we'll see only only went by the one name, kind of like Cher or Beyonce. Giotto was a student of Cimabue, who is also profiled in the Lives of the Artists. We aren't going to discuss Cimabue in detail here except to say that he came first. And Vasari actually regarded Cimabue as the first painter of the Renaissance, but others thought of him as actually the last artist of the Byzantine era. And, you know, students of art history can kind of know, you know, the the difference, the main differences between Byzantine art and Renaissance art, a stiffer style, a more graphic style, a flatter style, especially when painting the figures, et cetera. 
So Giotto, as was the the way of the day, becomes a student. And the way it happened was Chimabue actually walks by and sees Giotto as a young boy tending his father's sheep and happened to be drawing on a rock with a sharpened stone. And Chimabue looks down at his drawing and he says, wow, these sheep are really lifelike, you know. (laughs) Would you like to come and live with me? Which today sounds you know, <laughs> like, of course, and frightening. But that you know, his his father was so pleased because that means he's going off to you know probably a lucrative job and apprenticeship under a, a skilled artist. So Chimabui, you know, takes Jado under his wing, and and again, like as was the the style of the day, Jado completely masters his master's style. He copies it. That's how they learn. They copied their master but soon begins to break from it, begins to break from the rigidity of Chimabue and develops a more lifelike style that, that you can see in the work today. And particularly drawing from life, which he started doing even as a young boy without a master. He was drawing the sheep on the rock. So, you know, Vasari is already launching into his high praise. He says that every artist since Giotto owes as much to Giotto as they do to nature itself for influence. You know, whether or not that's true is completely debatable, but I'm certainly a fan of Giotto. We'll talk yeah, more about who, that. yeah, who isn't? It was really good. I, I, <laughs> really good artist. Um, Solid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So he goes on and, you know, once Giotto starts to make a name for himself, he gets some commissions, painting works in situ in, in places like the Basilica in Florence, and he goes around to Assisi. And I should say that he he grows up in a town called Vespignano, which is near Florence. So he's in the greater Florentine area. Right. And pretty soon Pope Benedict, one of the first popes we'll see, Benedict IX gets wind of him and he sends a courtier to go check out this Giotto that he's heard about because he, you know, he lives in St. Peter's in, in, in the big palace in the Vatican in Rome. And as the popes do, they want to show off their, their palace with gorgeous art. So they're always looking for these artisans. So the courtier finds Giotto. And he says, can you, you know, can, can you give me a drawing to bring back to the Pope? And what Giotto does is he draws a perfect circle by oh. hand, just a circle. And he wins the commission. And Vasari writes about this little anecdote saying that. Began, freehand, not like. Yeah, a, just freehand. No yeah, no compass. Compass. yeah, no. And he didn't trace a, a, a pot or anything. <laughs> um, he just draws it right then and there. He didn't and, trace a pot. Yeah, he wrong, just yeah. made a perfect circle. And so, you know, because of that moment, you know, the courtier of the Pope was so astonished by this. And so was the Pope. There began a saying, which, which is, you are more simple than a Giotto's O, something you would say to a stupid person. Oh, um, dang. The o, the o meaning the circle, right? right? You're more, more simple, simple than a Giotto's O. I'm going to use Giotto's that next time. O. Someone yeah. gets on my, rock, my bad <laughs> right. side. Right. I, I bet your list burns. So, um, <laughs> So, you know, then he goes on, he paints some more commissions. He does a crucifix at Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. And, and then his, his great patron, the Pope, dies. But there's a new Pope, Clement V. And he too calls Giotto to come to Avignon in France, where he makes more money. And now his wealth, uh, he, he's making money, and, but he's also making more of a name for himself. So he gets to be more famous. And, and lucky for Giotto, you know, this is how it was. If, if you had the favor of the Pope and his court, you were set financially. Right. You, you could, you know, save up your money if you were smart. Not everybody was, but um, Giotto <laughs> saved <laughs> most of his money. And um, and that's how you made a living. So Giotto becomes friends with Dante Alighieri of the Inferno fame. Yes. Uh, they were buddies. 
He gets name checked in the purgatory section of Dante's Inferno. Nice. Um, where where Dante <laughs> says that Giotto has surpassed the greatness of Cimabue, his teacher. And then in turn, Dante appears in several of Giotto's paintings later on. And then he's, he travels all around. He's a busy guy. He's running around Tuscany and Umbria, huge regions, doing other commissions for other churches. So, you know, he really, he really gets around. I was just kind of floored at this point in the book, just seeing how prolific he was. And we're not even to the famous stuff yet. Then he is heard, you know, his, he's world famous at this point, at least within the, the Catholic world. And he gets called by the King of Naples down in Southern Italy to come decorate the church of Santa Chiara, which is in progress. It's under construction and he needs some, you know, paintings on the walls. And this is, you know, Vasari says that this is fully Giotto's work, although later scholars would say that some of these were actually finished by some of his students, Giotto's students. But the the Castel Nuovo, which is the actual residence of the king, Giotto starts working on it and and the king becomes, you know, friendly with him. And at one point it's a hot day and and he comes up to him and says, you know, Giotto, if I were you, I would I would leave off painting for a while because it's so hot out. And Giotto wittily replies, and so would I, if I were you, implying that, you know, the king could not, could never paint as well as he. Never. So he, he becomes known for his like witticisms and, uh, and his kind of, you know, jocular humor. So then he goes on, he paints some more, you know, a crucifixion in the temple Malatesta, which is also in Naples, I believe. And in this one, now his figures are starting to, to change. According to Vasari in, in Rimini, which is Southern Italy, he paints a crucifixion and the story of Blessed Michelina, who was a woman accused of adultery. This is a Bible story. And Vasari you know, writes about this painting as a turning point. It demonstrates Giotto's excellence in depicting human emotions and naturalism. So you see, you know, the fear and the patience on the face of Michalina as she stands trial, you know, unjustly accused of cheating on her husband. And you see the jealousy and the suspicion and the outrage on the face of the husband. And this is new. You know, this mm -hmm. is something Shimabue was not able to do, a more lifelike expression. So he heads back to Padua, which is um, where he had spent some time. And this is where, if, if any of you have have traveled there, he paints the famous Arena Chapel, also known as the Scroveni Chapel in this church in Padua. It astonished me how little this, this one work of Giotto's receives in, in Vasari's book. It's just a blip. Vasari, mm. you know, vaguely mentions it. He says that it was a worldly glory, which made him even more famous and wealthy, and then goes on to describe some like more. Period, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what? Because when I, you know, I saw this church as a student in Italy, as an, you know, an art student traveling with architecture students my junior year, I was lucky enough to go there in person, as I'm sure some of you listeners have. And I was just floored by this chapel. This is one of my favorite works in the whole book. I never got over it, having seen it in person. Giotto's design his invention when it comes to architecture, which Vasari later writes about it, uh, in other works, where he's showing both the indoor spaces and outdoor spaces simultaneously, or the inside and the outside of a building simultaneously, mm -hmm. sometimes with open walls or, you know, invented spaces to allow us to see the action inside. Just incredible. The color, the color of the sky in this, in these frescoes, 
at the Arena Chapel. The blue especially is unforgettable. And then Vasari does write a little about individual composition. So, So Giotto had this ability to invent incredible individual compositions because there were many stories being told, uh, a cycle. Right. Within the little portals he created on the, on the design. Right. But also not just individual compositions, but then, you know, they were all unified as a group and how. Oh, you you mean like a multiple paintings were arranged in a, like an altarpiece or. Mm -hmm. Right. There would be, and you know, there, there were other cycles to mention as well. For example, his cycle of frescoes called the St. Francis cycle at Assisi. This is another sort of huge group of Giotto's most famous works. Again, in situ frescoes done at this church, or rather on the walls of the church in plaster that depict the life of St. Francis. So, you know, here we get a little more detail from Vasari (laughs) about how he... Vasari extols Giotto's naturalism and the lifelike details in the figures how he dealt with landscape, creating these mounds and mountains and cliffs in the foreground and background to sort of encapsulate the action. And and again, you know, reconciling the individual compositions and the unity of the whole cycle. So you can see images of these frescoes, the St. Francis cycle. If you were to Google them, uh, they pop right up when you Google Giotto, because uh, again, they're, they're some of his most famous one of the most famous being the stigmata scene where St. Francis receives the stigmata from a floating Christ that is in this sort of winged mandorla or almond oh. shape encapsulation. I mean, he looks like sort of half dragon, like some sort of mythological. It's an incredible painting with these imaginary lines drawn in gold that reach from the feet of Christ to the feet of St. Francis across space. So, you know, really uh, incredible work. So Vasari, you know, in this chapter, he, you know, gives us the main highlights of Giotto's work. And at the end, he repeats that Giotto was witty, sharp-witted and a lighthearted man. And he gives us, he he quotes, uh, again, like another writer, Franco Sacchetti wrote a work called 300 Novella, where he writes about Giotto. So he quotes Sacchetti with this little anecdote where he talks about the coat of arms story. And as I remember it, a man came, you know, he had heard about how famous Giotto was and he came to his door and he knocked on the door and said, I would like you to paint this buckler, which is a shield. I would like you to paint my coat of arms upon this shield. And uh, Giotto's a very, you know, busy man. He's got the Pope, you know, calling him. Yeah, he's like, I get in line. Yeah, he was kind of like, who are are you? And the guy was like, well, I, you know, this is my family name and and I want you to paint my coat of arms. And he goes, okay. And I guess he didn't like the guy. So he takes the shield and he says, when do you need it by? And and he notes the due date. And then when (laughs) the man comes back for his shield, Giotto had painted parts of a suit of armor representing the arms. So he painted the wrists, the gauntlets, <laughs> the elbow patches, you know, the shoulder protectors in pairs. And that was his big joke. He's like, here's your coat of arms. Oh, and <laughs> I thought somebody... he was going to paint like a circle. Yeah, no, no. That, <laughs> yeah, he, maybe he did. But no, no. according to Vasari, according to Sacchetti, you know, what he gave him was a picture of a bunch of arms. And he said, you know, someone of your character shouldn't be, you know, He's like, first, make a good life. Then people will come to you to paint your coat of arms. Um, so, you know, he was quite the jokester. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, he was just like, burn. 
<laughs> so, so, you know, and then there were just, there are many more basilicas and more cycles of frescoes and more chapels and, and other works, just too many to mention. Uh, one of which being the Madonna at Ogni Santi, which some of the listeners might have been familiar with in Florence. But, you know, basically, you know, I loved reading about Giotto in this chapter because it was just fascinating to to read about him as a as a real guy, you know, an artist yeah. among artists. Exactly. That's what I loved a little bit about the book is that you got a flavor for who these people were. And that's something you kind of you miss out on when you're just taking art history. You don't really get like that he did a joke on that person or that he was lighthearted or and and so um that was fascinating <laughs> I didn't read uh, the Giotto chapter so to me it's new and fresh and I was really enjoyed hearing that and also about like your memories of seeing his work in person in Italy thank you Amy um I think like so we'll just keep it going I mean I have to admit to everyone that the people I chose were kind of the nobodies of the book, uh, generally, the people that aren't household names. And so my reviews are going to be a little shorter because they're not as accomplished as some of the bigger names. And Mandy had a bit of a harder job because she had to tackle some of the really giant, giant accomplished artists. So mine will be a little speedy and and maybe a little a little irreverent, but uh, we'll just we'll just jump in. Okay, so my my next one is um, Paolo Uccello. And I have a little note by his name that he was perspective obsessed and cheese avoidant, <laughs> which is kind of like the takeaway from the Paolo Uccello <laughs> chapter. He was a Florentine person born 1397. And he was OCD obsessed with perspective. Like this guy could not get enough of perspective. He spent all day alone in his house working on perspective and, you know, kind of reclusive in a lot of ways. And he just made perspective drawing his entire life and um, his entire personality also. <laughs> and and so Vasari can be a little critical of him because you know he values naturalism and lifelike and vivacity. And he was critical of somebody who would spend all their time in this analytical pursuit and not go for this sort of higher the higher ideals of art in, in Afasari's opinion. So, you know, things I took away were he advanced a lot of perspectival technique. He would put a lot of, you know, you think of um, Roman or Pompeii frescoes where you'll see like a painted archway in part of the fresco. So it, it almost blends with the architecture of the space. It's like a 2D trompe l'oeil effect. He was the master of that. He loved doing his perspectival painting on the fresco within a faux painted architectural archway or detail to kind of always trick the eye of what you're seeing. Is it real or is it not? Or have everything kind of recede in the perfect way. <laughs> his frenemy was Donatello. So he's sort of friends, sort of hated Donatello. He was so timid that when he was working on a painting for the San Miniato Monastery, his lunches were delivered by the monks and they were so often made of cheese. 
and he was so timid and afraid to protest. So instead he would hide from the monks when they were trying to deliver him his cheese. And he would like see them on the street and like duck into an alley and hide from the monks because he was just, it's like one of those people at a restaurant where I would include myself or you're afraid to say like, you gave me the wrong thing or you gave me it cooked improperly. You just suck it up. He was like, I can't tell them that I hate cheese. And so he would hide from them. But then finally, he just stopped work because he literally could not endure the cheese lunches and hid in his house. And then he had to be coaxed back. They promised him some different food. So he came back to the job, which is just a really adorable anecdote. Um, (laughs) And, you know, Vasari again was like kind of critical of him being so like perspective obsessed and he took issue with his fresco of Noah and the flood. He was like, mm, you could have done better on that wine cask. Cause there's like a wine cask barrel that's sitting on the ship. And he did the oval, maybe like not perfectly correct. And Vasari was like, okay, you're obsessed with doing it the perfect way. Well, let me tell you, you didn't get it perfect. And it was a little like snarky <laughs> meme. And then another funny anecdote about Uccello is that he was charged with painting a chameleon for this fresco that's now destroyed called The Four Seasons. And I guess he was doing like a windy April or something, a windy fall maybe is what the season he was trying to paint. And he was going to use a chameleon. They ha- he had to use a chameleon. And he didn't know what a chameleon was. And <laughs> so in Italian, chameleon is pronounced camaleonte. But a camel in Italian is camello. So you guessed it. The chameleon became a camel, uh, (laughs) swallowing a lot of air. And that was put in the fresco, which was very, very hilarious. It was, I think, at a home by Peruzzi, who did a vaulted ceiling. And that's where the, the camel chameleon existed for a bit. And then Donatello swooped in and had his piece to say. He came in to see his fresco above a door at the church of St. Tommaso. And Donatello was like, this is just a piece of bloop. You know, I think you just really bungled this. And then poor Uccello felt so humiliated that then he rarely left his house until his death. And so that's, you know, that's that's a summary of Uccello. I, I, I kind of felt like bad for him. I feel like he was just a very like gentle, sensitive soul who just really wasn't cut out for like the dog eat dog world of high Renaissance Florence, you know, artistic competition and all that sort of thing. And and, and, and so much cheese. Of course, there's a lot of cheese here in Italy. Um, Paolo. Paolo. And I wonder at the end, that's so sad that that um, Vasari says that he rarely left his house after after what Donatello said because of humiliation. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that. I wonder if it was really true because there's a there's a an anecdote later on where he said the same thing about another artist that oh, um, really? scholars later discredited. Okay, um, yeah. So I mean it could be Vasari up to up to his own, you know, exaggeration tricks. Yeah, his melodrama, his flair for melodrama. It could just be one of his Vasariisms, like, and he never left his house till he died because he was so humiliated at the end. <laughs> he just like swaps it in. But yeah, so that is a quickie on Paolo Cello, which I enjoyed reading because it just sounded like an adorable person. But now I think we're ready to tackle Masaccio. 
And thank you, Amy. I loved I loved hearing about Paolo Cello. Um, so so next we have Masaccio, whose real name was Tommaso di Ser Giovanni di Simone, but he went by Masaccio because Masaccio translates to bad Tom, or in this case, sloppy Tom, according oh, to Vasari. Tommaso is Thomas in Italian. And so Mazo is short for Tom, Tommaso. And then Accio at the end of a word uh, in Italian is usually a derogatory uh, suffix. Oh, so, okay. Oh, um, sloppy, so sloppy Tom. Tom. Why was he sloppy? Vasari says that he was absent-minded, erratic, and neglectful of his appearance and his possessions. So he was kind of a mess. Um, but he was generous with other people. So it sounds like he had his priorities, you know, in, in the right. Yeah. Um, Masaggio was uh, purportedly born in 1401 and died in 1428. So he died when he was only 26, although oh, gosh. Um, scholars still dispute the actual year that he died. But regardless, he was young. Wow. Um, yeah, which is uh, which is crazy because yeah. uh, you look at his work and it's amazing what he accomplished. So, you know, why is Masaccio important? According to Vasari, he he excelled at the human figure and foreshortening was something that he was really good at. So, for example, when we see figures painted, you know, all in a row, for example, the feet, they look level. They look like they're on level ground pointed at us instead of, as in the Byzantine era, looking like the figures are on tiptoe, you know, seeing too much of the tops of the feet. We see just the toes. And that was an innovation at this point. Masaccio excelled with movement of the figures and drapery, also vivacity, you know, the ability to make them look like they were alive and not just statues, right. which is it's something that I didn't really think about until looking more closely at the differences between these artists. And then naturalistic color we start to see in Masaccio and the nude. He, he studied, again, the figure from life. So there are examples of of drawings and paintings of the nude. One of the most famous actually would be the expulsion of Adam and Eve. That, oh yeah, that of course. Listeners might be familiar with. From I the can't believe he did Apple. that before he was 26. Um, I know it, it's rather That's humbling. Shocking. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about that in just a second. But um, so, so these are some things, you know, that I, that I thought were interesting about Masaccio's bio. And then he painted buildings in linear perspective, which Masaccio, he also would sometimes show the building with both the interior and exterior views simultaneously. But he showed that he understood aerial perspective, this idea that things get lighter in the distance. Oh, yeah. Landscape or like atmospheric the, perspective too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the same the same idea that um, that things disappear from view as they get further away. This again, this was new. This was all kind of new skills for Masaccio and his uh, contemporaries. He studied under and collaborated with Mazzolino, Mazzolino di Panicale, who Mazzolino was also a Tommaso, a Thomas. He was a little guy. <laughs> little Tom. Uh, yes. And it was cute because these guys were friends. Mazzolino and Masaccio were friends and contemporaries. He, even though he studied under Mazzolino, Masaccio also collaborated with him on several works and scholars to this day still debate whose work is whose because their styles were so similar, although some differences have been picked apart. I remember studying this one painting in, in Italy as a student, the Trinità, which means the Trinity, which is painted in the church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence. 
Vasari describes this painting in great detail. It is this beautiful sort of symmetrical painting divided right down the middle of Christ on the cross, sort of topped with a God the Father figure, and then this dove representing the Holy Spirit. And on either side are some saints. There's um, Anne and some other people sort of- A gaggle. A gaggle at the bottom, right, with their feet and wonderful perspective. Let's not forget. But, a gaggle um, of saints with perfect feet. <laughs> yes, gaggle of saints, beautiful drapery. But perhaps more impressive than all is this barrel vault that goes back in space that sort of tops the whole scene. And the barrel vault is crenellated. So it's punctured like a waffle with this grid of recessed spaces that also go back in perfect mm. perspective. Um, maybe not so perfect once you start looking at artists who would come after, but for the time, you know, pretty state-of-the-art linear perspective and showing this understanding of art architecture. And Vasari is just as enamored with the barrel vault as he is with the figures of Christ and God the Father. He's so, you know, into this perspective. So as you said, you know, that was one of his pet pet concerns, right, Amy? Right, you had to be perfect or yeah. you're going to get it from him. Yeah, he had, he had the sort of eagle eye when it came to perspective. <laughs> and I should say, Masaccio was a contemporary of Brunelleschi, Donatello, Lorenzo Ghiberti, Paolo Uccello himself. And Vasari says that this rivalry of peers was a good thing for him. It advanced the art of painting, you know, all these guys working together, but also, you know, kind of propelled each of them forward in their own, you know, genius. Yes, in their genius, um, their, their road <laughs> to genius. And usurping so, their masters. <laughs> um, yes. So um, besides the Trinita in Santa Maria Novella in Florence, Masaccio is also known for his paintings in the Brancacci Chapel, which is also in Florence, in the Church of Santa Maria. And this is an altarpiece and a group of frescoes that depict the life of St. Peter. And this was uh, one of the works that he collaborated on with Mazzolino, as well as Filippino Lippi, another of their contemporaries. Oh, yeah. He's and, coming up um, soon. Yes, yes, we'll talk about him. And so this is the church that has the expulsion scene of Adam and Eve that I just mentioned, where the nude Adam and Eve are being cast out of paradise. Adam and Eve were later, later, many decades later, covered in fig leaves. There's oh, really? Then I later, saw that. Yeah. Yes, later, the fig leaves were restored to their nudity. Yes. Um, so, you know, this was something that was controversial even then, um, <laughs> nude figures. But here, you know, Vasari's detailed descriptions of the differences in Masaccio and Mazzolino's hands in this one work, the expulsion, but also the scene of the tribute money, which is a, another Bible story where it, it's hard to tell whose painting is whose. Vasari gives very clear descriptions that are still used today by contemporary scholars to sort of tell apart paintings. Mazzolino had sort of a, a more refined style and a sweetness, a softness of the figures. Masaccio had sort of a rougher style, you could yeah. tell with the work, and even a coarseness of features in, in the figures. But otherwise, you know, pretty hard to tell apart. And then the other thing that was so cool about this chapel, the Brancacci Chapel, Vasari says that he used the actual light of the chapel. So the, you know, the way that the light came through the windows of the chapel as the light source in the paintings. So in that way, the scenes in the paintings seem to step into the real world of the people, you know, the viewers in the church that would see the paintings. The light all corresponded, you know, to the actual natural light, which I thought that was amazing. They were all so into like trompe l'oeil, like to trick the eye. 
Right. To have these spaces that were depicted seem, you know, sort of meld with the architecture of the church as if you could just step right on up into it, which I, I think is amazing, really fascinating. So I thought that was cool. And, and you know, even beyond that, Masaccio, you know, by doing that and by placing figures in sort of the dress of the day and situating his images a little lower, like more on the level of the viewer, so that we were eye to eye with their feet and they weren't so far up, you know, high above our heads. You know, Vasari says that Masaccio sort of brought these stories, you know, down to the level of the viewer, made them more relatable, in other words. Yeah. And more sort of relevant to people who were viewing them. And then in this chapter, Vasari gives a list, as as he is wont to do, you know, a, a litany. <laughs> well, yeah. He loves the written word. He loves, yeah, he loves a list where he kind of lists all the artists that he says were influenced by this very chapel, by having seen the Brancacci Chapel in Florence. And it's pretty much every famous painter of the Renaissance. You know, it's like Michelangelo, uh, Da Vinci, Raphael, everybody, everyone, everyone who will, you know, whoever mattered, you know, pretty much were who they were because they stood in this very chapel, you know, sort of gazing up at the work of Masaccio. So I thought that was pretty cool. It is cool too. Like if you, you know, if you get to visit it, to think that you're standing in this room where all the greats once stood. Yes. The great um, Renaissance Florentine artists once stood. It, it is. And I actually, um, Amy, I found a sketch that I had done as a student of the Trinita painting. I actually was, you know, under this painting, sketching very roughly <laughs> the face of Saint Anne and, and then, you know, Christ. And you know, I remember actually having to to read this book as the textbook for my Italian art history class. Oh, and really? It, so it's kind of amazing going back and, and rereading it with fresh eyes because I, you know, to be honest, I don't remember half of, <laughs> of the well, stuff. It's, <laughs> it's intense. It's intense. Might not have been such a good student back in those days. I don't know no, but I mean, it was some of them were I was hard pressed to to stay awake for, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. So good to read. It. <laughs> I don't know if I would have been a good student either. <laughs> So that was Masaccio. Okay, awesome. That was excellent. I really enjoyed all those Masaccio factoids. Poor Sloppy Tom. That was sad. But I guess he embraced it ultimately as a badge of honor. So yeah, so um, next up, we are going to go to Fra, or is that, what I say, Fra or Friar? Fra. Fra Filippo Lippi, who I characterized from my summary as libidinously lustful and also bad at hands. (laughs) So Fra Filippo Lippi was born, of course, in Florence in 1406. And when I was um, doing a quick like background on the Wikipedia of him, I found this very funny little thing that I have to mention right off the bat, that Wikipedia said, this article is about the Italian painter for the Norwegian New Wave Band. See, Fra Lippo Lippi Band. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, you learned something. Norwegian New Wave Band, same name. Um, You weren't expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, his most kind of important works are frescoes in the choir of the Cathedral of Prato or Prato, which depict the stories of St. John the Baptist and St. Stephen. And um, 
And one in particular, the Feast of Herod with Salome dancing is one of his best known. He was a Carmelite friar. He was orphaned as a young child, which is kind of a common theme in the book. He was cared for by an aunt, but she surrendered him to a monastery. And so he became a friar at the young age of eight. And the prior luckily recognized his talent and encouraged him to paint. And there is a fabulous legend that during his young life, you know, maybe his teenagehood, early 20s, he was captured and enslaved by Barbary pirates. <laughs> and, that he, and that he won his freedom by drawing a portrait of his captor with a fireplace coal. <laughs> it's like... That can't be true, but if I hope it's true. That's one of the legends about Lippi. And he became friends with the very powerful Cosimo de' Medici. And then through that, he found favor with the Pope who happened to be Eugenius IV, you know, hearkening from Venice. So he was kind of, you know, in with the in crowd. Filippo was a total like bleep boy. Like he was obsessed with sex and women. And he would skip work to pursue women. He just loved, you know, he was a hedonist. He was a, what's another word? He was a, um, oh. Romeo. He was a Romeo. Um, and it got to the point where he was skipping work so much to have all his multiple affairs that Cosimo de' Medici trapped him inside his house so that he could focus on painting or trapped him inside on a, on a job so he could focus on painting. Or maybe Cosimo, yeah, Cosimo trapped him inside his studio once so he could focus on finishing a painting. But he did the old bed sheets out the window trick and got <laughs> laid in it. Wait. Um, he's referred to as having a, quote, lustful libidinous humor, quote, bestial desires. And after that, with the bedsheet trick, Cosimo just gave up and let him come and go as he pleased, chalking his eccentricity up to, you guessed it, genius. <laughs> um, according to Vasari, he was terrible at painting hands. And so he would frequently cover them up in the painting with a, like a piece of fabric. So keep an eye out, keep an eagle eye out for that little trick. And also keep it in your back pocket in case you're terrible at painting hands. Um, he started work on a fresco in a convent at Santa Margarita in Prato or Prato and espied a beautiful young ward of one of the nuns named Lucrezia. And of course, he became obsessed with her, lured her away as she was looking at the girdle of Our Lady, which I have to just do a little side note. The girdle of Our Lady is a holy relic in Prato. And it is greatly revered. Like it's the it's the like reason you go to Prado is to see the girdle of Our Lady. And it's just this green belt kind of faded with golden threads woven in and some small tassels. And it's said to have been worn by the Virgin Mary. And um, I'll put a picture in the Instagram of this girdle of Our Lady because it's it's a little underwhelming, but it's also funny to have that be like your town mascot. Um <laughs> And Lucrezia stayed with him and they had a son who also became a painter, which that might be the Filipino Lippi. The Filipino Lippi? I think so. I think that's Filipino Lippi. And so, you know, he wasn't, obviously he didn't change after Lucrezia. He kept having affairs and he died mid-project painting the chapel of the main church in Spoleto. Some think 
that he didn't die of natural causes. Some think that he was poisoned by an angry father or husband for all his philandering. <laughs> and I put a little note here. Don't start none or won't be none. Because, uh, you know, he was kind of asking for it with his crazy ways. And and Lippi never did the honorable thing. He never married Lucrezia. His 10-year-old son, Philip, Filippo, was left to another friar upon his death. And the friar swindled him out of all his inheritance money. <gasps> which was, you know, kind of a crime, but, but positive, the boy eventually wound up apprenticed to no other than Botticelli. So all was well. And again, I, I have more of the nobody list, so I'm just going to take a deep bow and, and, and complete my discourse about Fra Filippo Lippi. Well, that was well done. And, and Fra Filippo Lippi is, is no nobody in my book. No, um, no. I, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say nobody when I say that. I just think when I say nobody, what I mean is a less household name, perhaps. Sure. sure. Not a not a Donatello or a, or a Da Vinci. Right. Maybe oh. I should come up with a different word, like a lesser known, a, um, a slightly lesser known person. That, that, yeah, that is that is my tale to tell. <laughs> Well done. And I am definitely going to remember that trick of hiding the hands under fabric, under drapery. That was smart. I mean, he, that might have been his genius. He got away with it. <laughs> that was an example of his genius right there. Right, Masari? Um, so I think we're moving on now to the delicious Piero della Francesca. Thank you. Um, so Piero, Piero della Francesca, known by friends and lovers alike as simply Piero, was born in 1410, although some say 1420, so that's disputable, uh, died in 1492, which is a year we're familiar with, more or less, in Borgo San Sepulcro, which is the Arezzo province, same area that Vasari himself is from. So Vasari begins talking about Piero by defending his honor. Um, he says that you know, he, he, he starts off in this very indignant tone where he talks about how, you know, people who are just donkeys dressed up in the noble skin of a lion shouldn't, shouldn't talk and how poor Piero, his honor was, uh, slandered by people who said that he wasn't worth all the, um, all the fame and acclaim that he got and was, it was almost ruined. His career was almost ruined by detractors. Wow. So, you know, Vasari kind of launches into the beginning of his bio of Piero by, by holding up his honor and saying he's worth every, you know, award and, and uh, accolade that he got. So it starts like defensively. Yeah. Defensively. Yeah. And it was because he was blind at the end of his life that Vasari says, that's what prevented him from reaching his due fame. He would have been even more famous if he hadn't been stricken blind. And Vasari accuses Piero's student, Luca Pacioli, of, quote, wickedly usurping his teacher's honor by plagiarizing Piero's writings. Piero was a writer who wrote about perspective and geometry and and foreshortening and, and his ideas about creating perspective with color, like we talked about. And this this kid, Luca Pacioli, you know, um, tried to pass off some of those writings as his mm. own. So, yeah. <laughs> In the opening paragraph. So um, and we learned that Piero is named after his mother, Francesca. That's why he's called Piero della Francesca. Oh, really? um, I wonder, mm-hmm. like, that's so unusual. Yes, right. It was. And um, Piero's father died while his mother was pregnant. So he never met his dad. 
Uh, he grew up with just his mother and Vasari credits her with nurturing Piero's talents and, you know, giving him the life where he could, you know, succeed as an artist. She had an early, you know, eagle eye for his abilities. So we can, That's we, lovely. Can thank, we can thank Francesca for Piero. Piero studied math as a young guy, and he later based his compositions and perspectives and curved forms, which were sort of newly, you know, impressive at the time, um, what Vasari called regular bodies, uh, curves on Euclidean geometry. So, you know, again, this was sort of a new area of math at the time. And, and he was so into geometry. Piero would take these forms and concoct what he thought were theoretically perfect forms. He would use, you know, and I remember having to do this as an art student. Did you, Amy, where you had to take like a Piero della Francesca painting and find the triangles and find the the semicircular like organization in the composition? Uh, no, but I wish I had. Um, yeah. And it sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. And so that's something interesting, you know, just to see his fascination with geometry. What else did I love about this chapter? I mean, there's so many famous works and uh, I'll get into it in just a second. One thing that was cool was he made clay models and draped them with wet folded cloth, kind of like, you know, Plaster of Paris, little studies to study uh, drapery and, and draw from them and paint from them just to get better at that on his own. He becomes favored by the Duke of Urbino. So again, it helps to have, uh, you know, friends in high places yes. <laughs> this time. And the Duke, as as was the way of the time. He he lives in the Ducal Palace. And so he wanted to just like take down and cover up all the previous paintings from yeah, the previous. Put a stamp on and, things. Yeah. So many of the existing artworks were just trashed when Piero comes in and paints over them. And what else? Piero had various students. We've heard of some of them, Luca Signorelli and also Perugino. He, you know, so we had a, a pretty successful little life, um, hopping from one commission to the next. He goes blind at the age of 60 with an affliction called catarrh, C-A-T-A-R-R-H, which is, looks like cataracts, maybe. Oh, but it actually was deeper than blindness. It affected the mucous membrane, supposedly, and it was a horrible, horrible disease. But he would stay alive for 26 more years working blind. Uh, oh, and he died how did he do that? Did he do sculpture? Vasari doesn't go into that. He just says that it was a shame that, you know, he, oh. he would have made more work. So I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what happened after that, but he died at the age of 86 and left behind many of his writings that that scholars would still go to because he was supposedly the leading geometrician of the day, the, you know, ge oh. geometry scholar. A rare, a rare confluence of math skills and art skills. <laughs> yes. Although, as we'll, as we'll see, you know, many other artists to come would also do this uh, later. So, so yeah, he was really into math as well as drawing, and, and that, that's what fed his art. Um, so some of the works, the most famous works that Vasari talks about would be the fresco cycle of the True Cross in Arezzo, where, you know, again, you walk into a chapel and there are walls facing each other surrounding the space that are all covered in different scenes. And specifically the scene, most famously the scene of Emperor Constantine's dream that he has and this, the foreshortened figure of night, uh, which is in the form of an angel coming to Constantine. Uh, it's an incredible painting with natural light. And Vasari talks about its well thought out composition and how real it is emotionally. And then there's this battle scene in another image where 
you can see the, you know, individual emotions of the soldiers and the gleam of their arms and the foreshortened horses, which that too is pretty impressive. You know, the, the ability to draw animals in motion from life. Vasari says that these horses are too beautiful and too excellent for those times. Um, you know, so like he just couldn't believe this, this fresco cycle. And he wasn't the only one. Philip Gustin famously was wowed by this cycle of frescoes. He wrote about yes. it several times. He was a huge Piero fan. That was almost like his North Star. Yeah, it was. Um, it, he talks about, you know, Gustin talks about Piero's geometry, but also I found this Brooklyn Rail article from the Brooklyn Rail in 2011, an article written by Greg Lindquist. Oh, I, um, I've met Greg. Have you? Yes. Great. Well, it was fascinating because I was also reading another book about Gustin, you know, simultaneously while reading Vasari, but um, it was just so cool to see the overlap between Gustin and, uh, or just the, the influence that he had on, on Philip Gustin. Just Gustin talks about seeing these Arezzo frescoes and he says that the figures within them transcend their actions. He says that, you know, that it's not just a man stabbing another man in the neck. It's an eternal man, a timeless oh. stabbing. And it was this underlying geometry, which I found fascinating that he says, that Gustin says, gives the paintings their timelessness. And Vasari talks about it too, that there, you know, people are sort of suspend. There's this cosmic feeling. Again, Gustin talks about, you know, there being no other word than cosmic mm. to describe the, the way the figures are situated within architecture, the way triangles are used, pyramids, circles, and semicircles, sort of giving everything, even violent scenes, this very sort of placid, otherworldly tone. Like that kind of <laughs> symmetrical... Yes. Extreme symmetry gives this feeling of like the golden mean or the, yeah. well, um, in, what, what yeah. do they call it? That, that, the, the perfect um, spiral that appears. Fibonacci in, spiral. Fibonacci or, spiral, mm -hmm. or right. even like thinking about mysticism through the ages, like that kind of mm -hmm. interest in triangles and, and geometric shapes, like a Hilma F. Clint starter style. And yeah, yes, there was this, there's a famous painting at, at the town hall in San Sepulcro where there is this resurrection scene. And this is a great painting because not only do we see this pyramidal composition, there's Christ with his foot up, one leg up, as he sort of like leaps out of the tomb while his soldiers and apostles are sleeping. He's got a flag up with the opposite arm. So he's sort of like topping the triangle with this flag. And then the the figures at the bottom of the tomb are all splayed out, sort of making the bottom of the triangle. So there's that. But there are some funny things that Vasari points out. He says that the scene contains two vanishing points, which is like a problem-solving device that Piero came up with to achieve compositional harmony. And he says that also one of the figures is rumored to be a self-portrait of Piero, one of the soldiers at the base of the flagpole. And he also says that that there's this symbolic use of trees in the painting. I thought this was fascinating. The trees on the left side of the painting, which just looks like a continuous landscape behind Christ, but the trees on the left side are dead and the trees on the right side are flourishing. And that's oh. supposed to represent this like purification and life through literally through the body of Christ. So that kind of visual, you know, storytelling was purely Piero.
And then there's this other famous painting that I love seeing in Italy, the Madonna della Misericordia, which means mercy, Our Lady of Mercy, which is also in San Sepulcro, an incredible painting that um, shows the Madonna sort of twice the size of the figures below who surround her in this big cape. And the whole scene is topped by a dome, a, a semicircular golden sort of recess or apse that she stands in. And it's just got this weight and beautiful simplicity of the natural lighting and and facial features. That's an incredible Um, painting. Yes, I'm sure listeners are familiar with that. Or if you aren't, Google Misericordia. (laughs) And then strangely, and I could be mistaken about this, but it seemed like Vasari did not mention Piero's famous double portrait of the Duke and Duchess of Urbino. Oh, really? Um, You know, the Federico da Montefeltra and Battista Sforza, which are such great portraits. So that's that's just omitted by Vasari, which is, you know, he's he's otherwise usually such a careful, you know, cataloger of works. So I thought that was interesting that he just left those out. Or maybe it um, came to light a bit later and yeah. was appreciated later or something. Yeah. So so that was Piero. That was so good. I loved learning more about that, especially with the the Gustin angle, because I got a book on Piero to study it. And I did notice that symmetry and it was so fascinating to hear more that that was, you know, his intention and that sort of cosmic insight that Gustin had about him. I'll just look at it in a different way now. I really loved hearing about that. Thank you for your Piero deep dive. Okay. So we're going to move on to my pick, Madonna Properzia de Rossi. And, you know, this is the single woman included in the over 200 names in the Lives original volume. Um, She's sometimes included in the translations, the English translations. She is in my 1991 book, but she, uh, I think, Mandy, you found she was not included in your edition. Right. She wasn't there. When you mentioned her, I went back and looked at my table of contents and she's not even in there. Right. And so she has a short kind of chapter on her. And also he sandwiches in about four or five other women artist names, but they they don't really get any treatment. They're just sort of listed. So she's really the, even though you could technically say he mentions four or five women's names, the only one he really um, expounds upon is the Madonna Properzia de Rossi. And so I thought we definitely need to profile her um, in this podcast. And so my little cheat sheet note about her chapter was envied by all, soared to fame on a peach pit, but never got her crush. <laughs> so that's my elevator pitch for Madonna. Wait, <laughs> I want to hear about the peach pit. Yeah, she soared to fame on a peach pit, but never got her crush. So basically she was from Bologna. That was like a different town than Florence for a second. She was born in 1490. And, you know, he he talks about great women of history from ancient Greece and kind of parallels his time, his age in Italy as having also great women, just like in Greece. So he's kind of like reaching back in time and sort of aligning in the reader's mind that there's a parallel between the accomplishments of Greek art and his current time in Florence. 
and that they also have great women. And I love that he refers to her as a sculptress. <laughs> so I just feel like I want to put that in my Instagram bio, like sculptress uh, forever. Um, the other <laughs> artists that he mentions are Sister Plotila Nelly, Sofanisba Anguisola, and Madonna Lucrezia. So those are the other little quick mentions. He has several funny quotes I want to read. One is, speaking about the women artists of Florence or the time, they have not been ashamed as if to wrest us away from boasting of our superiority, meaning men, to place themselves with their tender and lily white hands in the mechanical arts between the roughness of marble and the harshness of iron in order to attain their desire and earn renown, just as Properzia de Rossi. So, you know, it's just, it's just sometimes very quaint and cute the way he thinks of women. Um, he said specifically about Properzia that she was skilled in household duties, as well as in countless fields of knowledge. And she was envied by men and women alike. Beautiful. She was the best singer in Bologna. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a tall statement there. The best singer in Bologna. And she had a ready and inventive wit. And this, this is the love story. She was in love with a handsome young man who, it seemed, cared little for her. And, you know, it's, very, it's a very colorful chapter, very fun to read. But I've read a, a bit more. People are critical of Vasari here because with the male artists, he kind of expresses their genius as something that's inbred, born into them. They're almost like chosen by God to embody this, this higher talent. And women are, are said to have worked very hard and studied and become, you know, good at their craft, but they're never really put in that same kind of like heraldic language of, oh, you know, a beam of light came down from the heavens and uh, the, the person was imbued with the greatest genius on earth. It's more like she worked really hard and she got uh, she got where she got the end, you know. So it's a little bit that's something to kind of keep in mind when you read it. And so the reason I bring that up is the fact that he's kind of putting in also this romance angle. So, you know, her work has to always be about, you know, focusing on a man or love and her, you know, her work is seen within the lens of her romantic aspirations, similar to, isn't there a term, I forget what it's called, where there's a, a way to view movies in the current day right now, where if they have, you know, a woman talking about a man to another woman, it doesn't count. The women have to be in a scene talking about something that's not another man. Okay, yeah. The Bechdel test. The Bechdel test is a measure of, it, it asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. And the requirement also that the two women be named. And that is how a movie passes the Bechdel test. And so Vasari does not pass. He is <laughs> basically, you know, her life is based, her, her entire art oeuvre is based on her thwarted romantic desire for a man. So he, you know, he's not passing the Bechdel. But anyway, there are, there is good information. And I'm also just grateful she's in here. So, you know, the story is that she began carving peach and fruit stones, namely cherry and plum, 
with tiny, intricate, slender figures um, that he said were, quote, most unusual and marvelous to see. And for example, she carved the entire Passion of the Christ upon a peach stone in the most beautiful intaglio with countless characters besides the crucifiers and the apostles. So it's really like a feat. And I think one of her carvings was kept in a duke's cabinet of curiosities for many years, his wonder camera. Uh, was because she, you know, these these objects are amazing, and the idea is that you know she was not able to access these grand materials like marble or stone and get these big commissions right off the bat. So she had to start humbly and prove her talent and skill through these very mundane and common materials to prove that she's a good sculptress. And so she's you know she's carving away, making her peach pits. Some of them are coming out amazing like she made this huge like coat of arms it was silver filigree and it's just this beautiful silver filigree almost like hanging open work and every so often a dangling carved peach pit is suspended within this silver work and each peach pit is delicately carved or you know cherry pit and some of the peach pits are made into jewelry with precious stones and they really are a marvel to behold <laughs> I encourage everyone to check them out. So she, you know, she's carving her peach pit. She's doing good. But because of the merits of her carving, she was paid to create like a bas-relief marble panel that depicted Joseph and Potiphar's wife, now in the Museum of San Petronino in Bologna. And she was paid, unfortunately, quote, a most beggarly price. And this Vasari attributes to her enemy, an arch rival, Amico Aspertini, who had it out for her. And he always was kind of working to ruin her, um, kind of sabotage her commissions and pay, which is like rude Amico, like she's got enough challenges. But, you know, she had a crazy life too. Like she's considered, she's sort of characterized as sort of transgressive, you know. So there's a story that in 1520, she like snuck into her neighbor's yard with her lover her neighbor was called Francesco da Milano, and her lover was Anton Galezo Malvasia. And they snuck into Francesco's yard and they like ripped out all of his vines and like cut down a tree, a cherry tree. <laughs> so it wasn't like a big thick tree. And she was kind of characterized as Anton's concubine. Um, <sighs> so she was charged in, uh, you know, she was charged for that. She was so she was kind of in trouble for vandalism. And then then in 1525, there was like a brawl that broke out between the painter Domenico Francia and Vincenzo Miola. And she kind of like ganged up on Vincenzo with Domenico. Like she had Domenico's back. And like she rushed into the fray and started like scratching his face and eyes. <laughs> and oh so my God. And so then, like, you know, the police show up and Amico Aspertini, like, pops up like a groundhog. And he's like, yeah, I saw it. She's guilty, of course. And so thanks a lot again, Amico. And then in um, 1529, she's documented as being in the hospital recovering from syphilis. So I think she had kind of more of a, like, a, you know, wild life. She wasn't like your conservative Madonna of Renaissance Italy. I think she kind of did her own thing. And then, you know, going back to that problematic idea that she's able to depict a naturalistic and beautiful figures because of her romantic feelings for a man. 
he says that she was able to depict Joseph and Potiphar's wife so successfully because she was madly in love with a handsome young man who cared little for her, and that in carving this piece, she was able to get over her passion. And so it's a little bit of this, like, this description uh, kind of takes on these contemporary notions of women controlled by their passions and by melancholia, you know, the, the mad woman in the attic working from this source of id and is not someone who is intellectual or talented in her own right. It's all kind of connected to a man. Yeah, not like a clear-eyed genius like, uh, you know, Piero or Da Vinci. Yeah, or just, you know, not able to even stand on her own two feet. Like she's yeah. got to be connected to this guy. In the end, the poor enamored girl succeeded perfectly at everything except her most unhappy love. And then sadly, she died before age 40 of the plague. And I feel like going through the coronavirus, like we'd just be like, oh, yeah, the plague. You know, now we can relate. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's tragic because she died just as people were starting to talk about her and oh. her talent was being spoke of. And it was even reaching the ears of Pope Clement. He was about to be like, hmm, who is this Madonna Procrucia uh, uh, de Rossi? Um, she died right then of plague. So it's a little bit tragic. And let me see if there's anything else. I think that's that sums up Madonna Propezia de Rossi. But yeah, I just encourage everyone to give her a Google. Like, find look at her peach pits. They're pretty amazing. That is amazing. And that's so fascinating. Um, just hearing all about that. I had never heard of her before we started, you know, reading this book together, Amy. And a peach pit is so not a smooth surface. And a cherry pit is not a large surface. That's incredible. <laughs> I know. And it's just like a note to self, like, you know, when life comes at you with disadvantages, like you, you know, to not let that stop you to just persevere in any way you can. And don't let the bastards get you down, which I, I appreciated. Like she had no marbles. So she turned to peach pits and, you know, made a name for herself anyway, even, uh, even despite the odds. Very cool. Yeah, so um, that is, we're complete with mine. And let's end it here since we're going a bit long and we'll leave it as a fun little next episode. So we'll do a two-parter, I think. Um, and we will pick up with Sandro Botticelli in the next episode and finish our recounting of Vasari's lives of the artists. Cool, that sounds great. Okay, cool. Until next time, talk to you later. Bye. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. Grazie, Mandy, for joining me back on the pod to cover another great art book. So looking forward to finishing our conversation next episode. Please visit Mandolin Wilson Rosen online at mandolinwilsonrosen.com or on Instagram at mandolin underscore Rosen. And remember, mandolin is spelled M-A-N-D-O-L-Y-N. You can also visit Pep Talks on Instagram too, at Pep Talks for Artists. A very special thank you also to Amy McCormick for your Buy Me a Coffee donation this month. Thank you, Amy. If you too would like to buy me a coffee, all links are in the show description of this episode. Okay, ciao a tutti, but only for now. B
be back soon with part two. I really appreciate you stopping by and I'll see you next time. Of course, there's a lot of cheesier in Italy.